Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Adam Winkler, Professor of Law at the University of California, Los Angeles School of Law. We will discuss his book, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights, which is published by W.W. Norton and Company. So welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, well, you know, the pleasure is all mine. Um, your book has gotten an incredible amount of ex- deeply well-deserved praise uh, because it's, it's, it's really just the most amazing and insightful kind of exploration of sort of the history of the corporate form and the history of the way that we think about corporations, both constitutionally, politically, and ideologically in the United States. And and beyond that, it's just beautifully written. So, I mean, I got to say, I really enjoyed reading this book and I can't tell you how glad I am that you wrote it. And I just want to congratulate you for this incredible accomplishment. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, it's always wonderful to hear that uh, someone likes the book, uh, especially because when I was writing this book, I was convinced that no one would like it and that it was a piece of garbage. So for all writers out there, know that whatever you think is garbage, other people may think is brilliant. So just keep going with it. <laughs> all, such an important sentiment to share. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I really loved about the book was the way it provided a really kind of comprehensive picture of how our current concept of the corporate form came to be. And it's, it's so easy to be kind of really presentist and ahistorical about uh, ideas like something like the corporation. We just assume it's always been like it is today, but I felt like you did a great job of explaining why that's not true and exactly how we got to where we are today. So I was wondering if you could just, you know, as briefly as possible, because it is a really rich story, kind of talk about how the concept of a corporation sort of began and what it meant in sort of colonial America and how that concept sort of evolved to become what it is today. Um, well, uh, yeah, well, the, the corporation goes back pretty far in, into uh, actually before the birth of Christ. So the earliest corporations uh, were formed in ancient Rome about 300 years uh, before Christ. Um, and they were designed to allow groups of people to pool their money to carry on a common activity, such as running a business. They solved the problem of partnerships. Roman law had partnerships, but a partnership, every time someone died or wanted to transfer their ownership, uh, the whole partnership would have to be reorganized. And the idea was that uh, a corporation would allow people to pool their money and carry on that activity and uh, overcome those transaction costs um, that uh, come from people leaving the organization or selling their shares or just dying. Um, And corporations became very popular in ancient Rome, and they were used for shipbuilding, for mining, for constructing temples. Um, And even some of the earliest corporations had a global impact. In 1997, there was a study of ice core samples from Greenland, and it found clear evidence of global pollution caused by Roman silver and lead mining corporations operating around 200 B.C., 
so from the very beginning, corporations were an attractive way to organize a business, um, but have also always been a potential threat to the health and well-being of people due to their size and their power and influence. Right. So, so how did that, I mean, how did that have an impact in the United States specifically? Because one of the things I thought was really interesting was, you know, the way you described how corporations in America were actually quite rare and unique or kind of special in early America. And it's only in more recent years that they've become quite common and, you know, something that we kind of take for granted. Well, that's right. Um, you know, the founding fathers did not live in a world with a lot of corporations. There were corporations and even some big corporations. I think about the East India Company, which was, uh, you know, a massive global powerhouse, even at the time of the founding era, and was in part responsible for the revolution, uh, right? I mean, when we think about the Boston Tea Party, the Boston Tea Party was um, in part, uh, a protest against the East India Company, which as a result of a massive bailout it had received from the British government, had received the right to sell tea in the New World for the very first time without using American middlemen. And uh, the colonists targeted that tea that night at, in Boston Harbor because it was the tea of the East India Company that they wanted to throw overboard. Um, so we know that there was corporations around, but um, uh, estimates are that there were only about uh, eight to twelve uh, business corporations of the sort that we would recognize in America at the time of the founding. And so the founders never really considered uh, whether uh, corporations would have constitutional rights. But strangely enough, one of the things I was sort of more surprised to find when I did my research was how the corporate form sort of shaped colonial attitudes about government, and shaped our constitution itself. That uh, when we look at, uh, one of the questions has always been, why did the framers have a written constitution when in England they didn't have a written constitution? And a lot of that answer stems from the fact that as colonies, there were written constitutions. And the written constitutions mm. of, char of the colonies um, grew out of the fact that the earliest colonies were corporations that were operating under a written charter given to them by the king that specified the powers of the corporate entity um, and that specified the rights of the, uh, the people who were in the, the sort of the stakeholders of the corporation um, and specified the limits on the power of the different governmental officers. And many of those basic governmental forms that we find in the constitution um, stem from those early corporate colonies uh, that, um, like I say, were formed under these written charters. Yeah, and it, and that really that particular point really struck me as well because so much of your book is about the kind of the irony of this dialectic between the concept of corporate personhood and the nature of sort of corporate regulation and kind of tying it back to this sort of relationship between the corporate charter and a constitution. I mean, I wonder if there wasn't sort of like almost like an implicit idea of kind of quasi sovereignty baked into and the early kind of idea of a corporation in the United States based 
precisely upon that kind of borrowing of the corporate charter into the idea of a written constitution? Well, it was sort of essential to the corporation to have a kind of sovereignty. So if you look at Blackstone, who writes um, before, right before the founding era uh, in England, he writes his commentaries on the laws of England. Um, and, and he writes all the way back in 1757 that corporations are artificial persons um, using a language that becomes much more controversial today than perhaps it was back then. Um, uh, but also specifies that one of the essential elements of the corporation in English common law was that the corporation had the right to adopt bylaws for its own self-governance, to adopt rules that govern the, the relationship between the people within the corporation. Um, and, and that was uh, a power that had uh, sort of grown and been part of English law, and that did carry over into the founding era. And what happened is, um, when the Massachusetts Bay Company um, uh, forms their colony uh, in Massachusetts, uh, and the charter is actually brought to the New World, um, and the people who are running the corporation are running the colony, and they're here in the New World, and, and they're using this corporate charter to organize their affairs. It, the, the corporate charter t- dictates that there'll be a governor, that there'll be a vice governor, essentially, a deputy governor that serves as like a vice president, uh, that there'll be an assembly where people have a chance to. Uh, come and, and speak and uh, and pass laws for their own governance. And it's clearly based on what was the English model of the common law, of shareholder meetings, of shareholders coming together and agreeing on bylaws for the governance of the corporation. So uh, it's one of the really um, unexpected ties between the corporation and the constitution that I found uh, in doing the research for this book. So a lot of your book or sort of one of the themes i think in your book is a sort of kind of development and transformation of the concept of corporate personhood and it seems like in a lot of ways that meant something different and was sort of operationalized or sort of transformed gradually over uh, the course of uh, American history. And I, I was wondering if you could kind of explain to listeners sort of how people conceptualize the meaning of corporate personhood in the 18th and early 19th century and how that's perhaps kind of different from the way it's conceptualized today. Well, corporate personhood, for all the controversy that it has been stimulated around that word since the Citizens United decision in 2010, um, it's a very long-standing legal principle that's deeply embedded in American law and uh, into the English common law. Um, as I said, Blackstone in 1757 calls corporations artificial persons, um, uh, and the idea of corporate personhood uh, is sort of bedrock to American corporate law. In fact, if you open any corporate law textbook used in law schools today, um, one of the very first lessons is that corporations are, for some purposes, deemed legal persons. All that means is not that they're just like you and me. Uh, corporate personhood means that a corporation has its own independent identity and standing before the law. It uh, is separate and distinct from the people who form the corporation. Right? So there's a legal separation between the owners of the enterprise and the enterprise itself. Um, uh, that's the idea 
if you slip and fall at Starbucks, you can't sue the shareholders or the employees. You have to sue the corporation. The corporation is the entity that is the responsible person for keeping those stores safe. Um, and so uh, uh, that idea of corporate personhood is longstanding because it, it's essential to that key idea that we mentioned earlier, that the corporation was a response and an answer to the problems of partnerships. Uh, and that key solution was the ability to hold property over a long period of time, in perpetuity perhaps, even though the particular members may come and go. And, and that basic idea is that, well, who, who can hold property rights? Well, a table can't hold property rights. A, an animal can't hold property rights. Um, uh, in the law, that the, con- the metaphor was that you have to be a person to be able to hold property rights. So a corporation was likened to a person for those purposes. Um, what's come, it's come to mean over time in the post-Citizens United era is the idea somehow that corporations are uh, fully equal to individuals when it comes to their fundamental rights, including rights of um, political freedom uh, and uh, religious liberty, some of these rights that uh, weren't the kinds of rights that they were concerned about in Rome uh, and weren't the kinds of rights that led Blackstone to describe a corporation as an artificial person. And and one of the things I thought was really interesting in, in your book, the way you talked about the evolution of the concept of corporate personhood is how today it's often seen or kind of paradigmatically seen as a defense of the ability of corporations to exist independently and to have rights to um, assert things or kind of the right to assert rights that individuals like natural individuals would have, but that historically it was actually used in the other way that like the idea of corporate personhood was actually sort of historically a more populist concept used to try to limit the rights of corporations. And and I wonder like if you could explain a little bit to people like how that changed or what that meant historically and how the meaning of the idea of corporate personhood changed. Well, no, that's right. The idea of corporate personhood does change. And I think corporate personhood is a fundamentally misunderstood uh, legal doctrine in the public debate today since Citizens United, um, because you hear a lot of people saying corporations are not people. Uh, they shouldn't have the rights of people. Um, and, uh, and the story is more complicated than that. If you look at Citizens United, it never says the corporations are people. And in fact, nothing relies in Citizens United on the logic of corporate personhood. Um, uh, instead, what Citizens United says is what a lot of the Supreme Court cases expanding fundamental rights over the last 200 years have said, which is that not so much that a corporation is a person and equivalent to people, but that a corporation is an association of people. And uh, those people who associate and form that corporation together have rights, and that corporation should be able to uh, basically assert and to defend those rights. Um, uh, And so expansive constitutional rights have not been based on corporate personhood, but rather a a sense of the corporation more as an association rather than as a person. Um, And in fact, as you mentioned, there's uh, a long history uh, in American law where corporate personhood, that idea that the corporation is a separate entity from its members, totally different with uh, separate rights and separate duties, the way Starbucks has vis-a-vis its individual shareholders, um, uh, 
the Supreme Court cases that really embrace that principle have generally led to rulings that narrowly read the rights of corporations or restrict the rights of corporations or afford them less rights than ordinary individuals. So uh, it's actually been, well, that was another one of those sort of surprising twists in the story of corporate constitutional rights is that I thought it was, when I went in, I thought it would be a story about corporate personhood. It turns out that uh, it's not and that where corporate personhood is thought seriously and taken seriously, uh, it's used to often to limit the rights of corporations. And that's what really, you know, one of the things that really struck me about the story that you tell in the book are these profound ironies about the sort of doctrinal and conceptual categories and how people use them to sort of make meaning over over time in that, um, you know, the idea of corporate personhood is kind of popularly understood to be something beneficial to corporations but like in particular in your in your conclusion right you you wrap up the story looking back at the idea of like for example like shareholder wealth maximization and the sort of like kind of really kind of the ultra economic concept of the purpose of a corporation and suggest that at least as I read it in a lot of ways that like conceptualizing corporations as truly independent from their shareholders actually might be more limiting rather than less limiting. Well, it could be, I mean, uh, you know, there are some real, um, uh, real issues about, uh, how do you discipline management in a world in which they don't have a fiduciary duty to maximize shareholder wealth? As you know, corporate law generally says you have to just operate the corporation in the interest of the entity. Um, but courts and sort of corporate culture in America have long sort of interpreted that to mean to promote shareholder value, at least in the long run. Um, and there have been times and moments where there have been uh, efforts to have a more capacious understanding of the corporation. Uh, the famous case of the Dodge Brothers versus Ford Motor uh, Company, uh, I, I, one of those landmark cases that students read in corporate law where the court says um, that corporations should be managed in the interest of shareholders and not broader stakeholders or communities of interest. Um, but uh, it's a perennial problem in corporate law because uh, there remain, of course, still plenty of people who are pushing for corporations to have more broader fiduciary duties than just to shareholders. Um, uh, Elizabeth Warren has just come out with a proposal for uh, co-determination of public companies where basically members of labor unions and labor representatives would have a seat on the boards of major corporations. And, and so there's still efforts to do this, but questions about whether fiduciary principles are uh, how do they apply in a world in which uh, the fiduciary has duties to multiple different masters. Uh, it makes it hard to know um, what they're governing rules really should be. Yeah. And, and, and in that context, I mean, I like the fact that you also point out that like the concept of a corporation today and also historically is more capacious than just a business corporation. I mean, of course, you know, the earliest American corporations were substantially, if not primarily what we would call today, charitable 
corporations. And it remains the case that many of the organizations that take a chart, uh, that take a corporate form today are nonprofit or charitable organizations of various kinds. And so when we think about, you know, how the law should think about corporations, it means not just business for-profit corporations, but also nonprofit and charitable corporations that explicitly have a sort of social normative purpose of some kind or another. That's right. There is a real diversity of the different kinds of corporations, and it's worth to keep that in mind uh, while uh, you're thinking about these issues. Uh, mostly my book does focus on the question of the rights of business corporations as a uh, particular category, but um, as you know, uh, when you tell that story, you can't tell that story without looking at other kinds of corporations because the Supreme Court has often expanded the rights of business corporations in cases dealing with the rights of other kinds of corporations. So one of the legendary corporate rights cases uh, was the Dartmouth College against Woodward case back in 1819, argued before the Supreme Court by the legendary Daniel Webster. And that case was an important case that established that corporations were private entities and not subject to state reorganization at a whim, uh, on a whim. And, uh, and that case, although it involved Dartmouth College, not the kind of business corporation we might be thinking of, was one that had big impact over the next 40, 50 years in American law because it was used by business corporations uh, to fight back against regulation and, and often to win. So um, uh, uh, there, uh, there uh, we do see um, uh, uh, other kinds of corporations uh, that play a role in the story of corporate rights and the corporate rights movement, if you will. But it's also worthwhile remembering the diversity of different kinds of corporations when we're thinking about how to reform the law in the wake of Citizens United. There's a big, a big movement to amend the Constitution to add a 28th Amendment. That would say that corporations have no rights under the Constitution. But if this amendment were passed, it would mean that no corporations, so no Planned Parenthood, no NRA, no Sierra Club, um, mm. no none of these nonprofits that we might be thinking of or voluntary membership associations, none of those organizations would have rights either because they're corporations. And the amendment would say that no corporation has rights. So I think it highlights that the diversity of corporations highlights that when we think about the problem of corporate rights under the Constitution, we probably need to think of it with a kind of nuanced, diverse answer rather than a, a one-size-fits-all blunderbuss approach that uh, the constitutional amendment that's been proposed seems to be. Yeah, and you and you mentioned the Dartmouth College case. I mean, it seems like a kind of a wonderful bookend in a sense that Citizens United, of course, was also a nonprofit corporation, which I think is sort of under-recognized by a lot of the people who are engaging with that particular with that particular problem. And one wonders like, you know, how that sort of principle would affect not only um an organization like Citizens United, which was arguably, you know, arguably uh, like violating campaign finance laws, but also like any other journalistic corporation like the New York Times or something like that. Well, that's right. I mean, if we talk about diversity of different kinds of corporations, we should remember there are also media corporations that really need constitutional protections. I tell the story of how 
um, one of the most important First Amendment cases um, in the Supreme Court's history, uh, uh, the Grosjean case from uh, the 1930s, um, was brought by Louisiana newspaper corporations that were fighting back against Huey Long, the kingfish, uh, who uh, ha- had tried to censor them basically by imposing a tax on their advertising revenue, basically punishing the press when they opposed his agenda. Uh, and they took that to the Supreme Court. And previously, the Supreme Court had only said that the right of freedom of the press protects against prior restraints. And Long's Law wasn't really a prior restraint. The tax was actually pretty small overall. Um, but uh, the Supreme Court nonetheless struck down the tax and broadly read the uh, freedom of the press clause uh, to prohibit not just prior restraints, but any form of censorship and any sort of burden on uh, on the freedom of the press. And, and the court made clear in that case that corporations could claim that right too, because look, newspapers were at the center of democratic debate and the ability to check the government. And they're published by corporations. And so if corporations don't have that freedom of the press, um, uh, then uh, it's a real problem. And if we go back through, go through the history of the First Amendment, we find a lot of the really important cases that Americans celebrate are corporate rights cases, New York Times Company versus Sullivan, about the rights of a corporation uh, to um, uh, to criticize public officials without fear of libel prosecutions uh, or libel suits, uh, or the Pentagon Papers case. You know, people out there who were who watched that movie, The Post, recently um, that might have found themselves at the end rooting for the Washington Post Company as it was asserting its First Amendment rights. So uh, the story is a complicated one, and often we find that corporations were at the cutting edge of constitutional law, breathing life into some of our most important constitutional rights, like the freedom of the press. So there's sort of been a trend in the last decade or so of books sort of purporting to tell like, you know, the history of the world through a particular lens. And, you know, in one respect... Your book is a history of corporations in the United States, but reading it, I couldn't help but feel like it was also, in some respects, a history of the kind of socio-politics of the United States as told through the lens of sort of the development of the corporate form. I mean, is that like a... does that make sense to you? Is that a fair assessment of of what was happening in your book? Well, I think I think it is a fair assessment, and I think one of the things it speaks to that's so interesting that I found was how deep and rich this history of corporate rights was, and how many cases there were, and how intimately tied so many of these cases were with key turning points in American history. The first corporate rights case to go to the Supreme Court was brought in 1809, and it was brought by the Bank of the United States, the the famous bank that was responsible for the split between Jefferson and Hamilton and created the two political uh, parties that uh, uh, were uh, at the heart of our American political system. Um, uh, We go through, uh, it was uh, big railroad corporations after the Civil War um, who were helping to breathe life into the principles of equal protection and uh, due process of law. Um, that uh, we had uh, in the nineteen uh, uh, in the nineteen fifties and sixties, there was corporations uh, and corporate rights cases involved in the civil rights movement, uh, all the way up through the sort of Reagan Revolution and the sort of resurgence of business 
as a political power in America, um, you know, that's associated too with cases in the Supreme Court, like the uh, case that was decided uh, in the Supreme Court 30 years before Citizens United, the Bilotti case that also recognized corporations as having political speech rights. So uh, it is true that we, we find that the rights of corporations are really uh, entwined through American history, um, uh, even touching things like Teddy Roosevelt's effort to break up the trust. So, um, uh, yeah, it was kind of that was one of the interesting things that, I, that, that, that I found and that often these debates would center often in ways that affected corporate rights. But Sometimes somehow we have lost track of and lost sight of those corporate rights uh, debates. Mm. And 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 in your book, you you frame the the sort of struggle as one primarily as being corporations and their representatives sort of using courts and the law to achieve goals that benefit their business interests in in various ways and and, and I want and that's clearly to, at one level accurate I mean but I wonder you know whether there isn't a sort of teleological element to that as well I mean like you know is where we've ended up something that was sort of predetermined from where we started or were there choices along the way that we made that made us get where we are today right in other words like you know was there an alternative option or is where we are sort of where we were headed whether we liked it or not well, I'm not a big believer in, uh, in in fate, so I believe everything is contingent. Uh, you know, there's a certain uh, pathways that we get set on, and sometimes it's hard to get off those pathways. But that's also a matter of choice. So, no, I think that the rights of corporations uh, have been a matter of choice, and it's been a matter of choice uh, in the Supreme Court. Uh, I think part of the story is that uh, the Supreme Court is often reputed to be. Uh, you know, the protector and guarantee, guarantor of the rights of the vulnerable uh, minorities. Uh, but the truth of judicial power in America has been that it's used primarily over the course of American history to benefit the wealthy and the elites, and generally not to help the vulnerable and the minorities. And uh, one of the most striking things about the history of the corporate rights movement, if you will, is how much more successful it was in the Supreme Court over the last 200 years than the civil rights movement was for most of American history or the women's rights movement was for most of American history. Those movements became successful over the last 50, 60, 70 years. Corporate rights movement has been winning cases in the Supreme Court since 1809. Um, and, and so uh, I do think that this is sort of an overlooked way of thinking about uh, about the how entities gain constitutional protection. Uh, and definitely uh, uh, worthy of some focus for that reason. Okay, yeah, that that makes sense to me. So, so Adam, it, it, in closing, I was wondering if you could, if you could sort of reflect on where we are today when it comes to uh, kind of the discussion around what corporate rights should look like, because I I, I think that there's a sense among a lot of a lot of people that um, corporations shouldn't have the ability to be as kind of ideologically involved or kind of exercise sort of 
ideologically influenced rights in the way that, you know, natural people do. And, and, and that seemed to be reflected in some ways in the conclusion of your book when you were like ironically talking about Judge Strine from the, from, from the Delaware court, kind of talking about, you know, thinking, thinking about what corporations are for and, you know, what it means to think about wealth maximization in relation to shareholders and what corporations should and shouldn't be doing. And I wonder if you think that, you know, this, this idea of sort of limiting the scope of what corporations can and should do is a good idea, a bad idea, or just an idea we should be careful with. Well, I think there, there's sort of competing schools on this. You know, I mentioned that there's a, a school out there that wants to amend the Constitution uh, to eliminate the rights of corporations. That's one approach to this problem. Um, another approach is the approach uh, favored by um, Professor Kent Greenfield at Boston College Law School, uh, who has a very interesting book out on corporate personhood now um, that called uh, Corporations Are People and They Should Act Like It Too. Um, and uh, if he, he makes the argument that what we really need to do is re- revamp corporations. Uh, we're not going to be able to revamp the Constitution in the way uh, that people want, or it doesn't really make sense to think of that problem in terms of the constitutional rights. What we do need to do is make corporations more responsible when they take any action, uh, including exercise constitutional rights. Um, and so there is a movement uh, uh, at, uh, at work to do that. Um, you know, I think that reforming American corporations is a very difficult task, uh, and it's not uh, an easy task. But uh, I mean, I think that uh, for those who are reformers in this area and who want to work at it, I think one of the stories that my book supports uh, is that um, a long-term, dedicated effort to read the Constitution uh, and change the Constitution uh, can work and can be successful. Um, corporations were not part of We the People. In many ways, they've become part of We the People. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thanks again for having me. I really enjoyed it. Think, 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 IBM. Think, 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 IBM. 
to sell that system every time. If you're thinking big, if you're thinking big, 